Verse 13. For this reason also, we constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word from men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. No other book does that. No other book in the history of the world performs its work in you. I mean, you can study a book on biology, and you can become a doctor, but the book is not working in you, you're working the book. This is different. This is where the Word gets in you and starts to do stuff. You don't even know what's going on. You're getting revelation for stuff you shouldn't be, and you don't know why until you realize, well, I was just reading that. Or you're motivated to move in such a way. Or prayers are being answered and you had no idea that it was the Word feeding into you and and leading you and performing its work in you. I just think that's a huge dynamic. But get this. Number six in our growing list. A disciple's diligence. Something else that opposition nurtures is a disciple's diligence. Paul uses two words here in verse 13, and if you read the King James translation, they translate the two different words the same, both words they translate received. We thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men. Now here, the NASV changes it, you received the word of God and you accepted it. And that's probably a little closer. Throw some more Greek words at you tonight. Paralambano is the first word, to receive. Paralambano simply means to take hold of something, to take it to yourself. Paralambano is the word that Jesus used when He says one will be taken, one will be left. One will be taken unto. That is the Lord receiving to Himself those who have been raptured in the rapture of the church. So it's just that picture of receiving. Man, Paul says, we taught the word to you and you took it to yourself. You received it. You took hold of it. But then he says... And we're thankful that you accepted it, not as the word of men. That word accepted it goes a step further. It's dechomai, and it means to take it in. You not only took it to yourself, you not only received it, but you digested it. You took it in. You made it yours. It became part of who you are. And one of my favorite examples of this in Scripture, goes back a long way to a a study many years ago. But I was reminded of this just yesterday. I was playing trivia crack on my phone. A little iPhone game, iPhone app, you can pick up trivia crack. (laughs) I hope it has nothing to do with cocaine. I'm not sure. It is addictive. But, so I'm, I'm just playing, and it's, it's a trivia game, and you can play other people, you know, and I'm playing Cheryl, and, and right now I think we're about neck and neck on wins. I'm trying to beat her on a current game, but I'm reading it, and a question came up, and I was so excited. It was a history question, but it was Bible history. I'm like, no way, I know this answer. Ding! You know? And here was the question. See if you know it. What was the name of the obese king killed by a left-handed Jew? Oh, yeah, Rachel's hand goes, yes? Eglon! It's a great story! And I got all excited, and I'm like, Eglon, yes! Eglon. You ever heard of Eglon? Okay, great story. It's in Judges chapter 3, verse 12, and I am just going to quickly read it to you. Listen to this. Because it's Rachel's favorite, let's indulge her. 
Judges chapter 3, verse 12, and, and it does apply. You're going to wonder how in the world. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon. His name's perfect. He was a, he was a large king. Let's just put it kindly. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered himself to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees, and the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. This is the pattern of the book of Judges. They sin, and he lifts protection, and they go into, you know, uh, slavery of a sort. And then verse 15 it says, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Girah, a Benjamite, and a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by Ehud to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, so about three feet long. He bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Judges 3.17, I'm not making this up. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So Ehud, get the picture. He's got his robe on. He's got his sword on his right thigh. And he's paid tribute to this large king. Typically... You would be checked to see if you were carrying any weapon. But if you were a right-handed person, your sword would be on your left side because you drew across the body. So chances are very good that they, you know, checked Ehud's left leg and there was no sword there. Well, of course, because he's left-handed. And his sword is on the other side. And we're told that he says, I have a message for you, O king. Well, Eglon wanted a secret message and, and he said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the handle went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw out the sword out of his belly. And the refuse came out. Isn't that great? That's just the best story. Ehud lost his sword in the belly of this king. Unbelievable. I remember teaching that in Judges and thinking, what a cool story. Why isn't more of this stuff on Netflix? Slice. And the refuse came out. Why is that story even in the Bible? Aside from the heroism of Ehud. Because my friends, the sword is living and active. The word of God sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We have an interesting, albeit... Gross, but absolutely stirring picture of the Word of God in the story of Ehud and Eglon. Because Ehud comes along and drives the sword into the king's body. 
It gets completely taken in. What happens? The sword goes in, the fat closes over the blade, and the refuse comes out. That's what God's Word does. The sword goes in, and the refuse comes out. That's how it works. I love the picture because that's what happens with a disciple. That is the piercing power of the Word that back in 1 Thessalonians... The Word which performs its work in you. It gets in. It slices in sometimes. Sometimes God's sharp two-edged sword is so sharp, it gets into us and we're not, we don't even realize it's there. But it gets deep. And what starts to happen, the more the Word gets into me, is the more the refuse, the garbage, the filth, it comes out. I don't want that stuff anyway. I don't need that, you know, hanging off of my heart and clogging up my spiritual arteries. I need to be free of that, and His Word does that. Now you might say, okay, it's it's an interesting example, Rick. But it killed Eglon, right? Exactly. The sword of the Word will kill the old man, the old woman in you. It will absolutely kill off any vestige of the old person. The king, if you will. The large king of your life sitting on your throne will be dethroned and killed off by the power of the Word of God when it gets in. And and what Paul says is, you received the Word. Man, you took it to yourselves, but then you accepted it. You took it into yourselves. You digested it. You, you, You know, the sting closed over it. It's in you now. And the sword of the Word received and accepted, especially where there's opposition, becomes a part of us. It's a part of who we are. That's why I am so pleased that you all show up. That's why I'm so thrilled every Sunday morning when I I see people filing in to the sanctuary because the sword's getting in. Sometimes people don't even know. That's really kind of a treat for me. When someone comes begrudgingly, you know, and they sit there and go, oh, whatever, I'll, I'll show up because the wife wants to be here. Boy, I just love it because I know that person's going to die. <laughs> the sword is going to drive the refuse right out of them. And to watch someone's life change, I'm just, I'm just an idiot sitting up here preaching the Word of God. It's not my Word, it's His Word. But I know what this Word does. I know how it gets in. You can't avoid it. I'll tell you right now, a little warning. If you don't want to be changed, stop coming because you're going to get changed and you can't help it. The sword is that sharp. And it has that deep an impact. Now, now, moving on, a word on the who and the what of the fierce opposition. Paul actually points it out, calls it out, those who are opposed in Thessalonica itself. Verse 14 He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Now, that is one clear perspective that it was the Jews who called Jesus up for those six unfair trials. The Jews who clamored, crucify Him, crucify Him. The Jews who said, His blood be on us and on our children. 
And it was Gentile hands that carried out the crucifixion. So let's not blame any one group of people. We all crucified Jesus. Our sin called for the crucifixion of the Lord. But what's interesting here that Paul points out is in comparing the church at Thessalonica to the Jerusalem church, or the church at Caesarea, or the church, the fellowship there at Capernaum, what he's saying is, you there in Thessalonica had the same issue. Opposition from your own people. Just as in Judea, they had opposition from the Jewish people, so you in Thessalonica had opposition from your friends and neighbors and family members. Isn't that the worst opposition we have? When your own family stand opposed to this word? And Paul says, that's what's going on. I see that. You have experienced in Thessalonica, all the way over in Europe, exactly what they were experiencing when the church was first birthed on Pentecost in Judea. Same persecution. But it's even more. It's the same opposition that is, watch this, Jews. In Thessalonica, 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 the same opposition in both locations, Jewish people, let me remind you of this, Acts 17 verse 10 says that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away, that is from Thessalonica, at night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea as Silas and Timothy remained there. So what happened? The Jews in Thessalonica had a hissy fit, stirred up the crowd and got Paul and Silas driven out. When they learned they were over in Berea teaching the same message, the Jews from Thessalonica went there and did the same thing to get them driven out yet again. But think about this. Where did those Jewish people From Thessalonica, where did they go after wreaking havoc in Berea? Back to Thessalonica. Back to the fledgling church there. Creating opposition and antagonism against the people of God there, the young fledgling church. And what is absolutely tragic about it is it was the people of God bringing opposition to the people of God. The Jews, God's chosen people, were the source, the greatest source of opposition in Paul's entire European ministry. These were the ones to whom Jesus came first. Matthew chapter 10, read it. When he sends out the apostles two by two, he says, I want you to go. Don't go to any houses of the Gentiles. Do not even darken the doorstep of a Gentile home. You go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, for that's why I came. The gospel, Paul said in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. But it was the rejection of the nation itself, of the Jewish people wholesale. It was that rejection that sent the gospel then on out to Gentile people. 
even though the very first church was all Jews, the greatest opposition of the church was Jewish. Something you got to note, though, is we often love to reference the nobility of the Bereans. You know, Chuck Missler even has Berean ministry, right? Uh, using that phrase, and we think, oh yeah, the Bereans, they were noble-minded. Listen, those noble-minded ones who were more noble-minded in Berea than those in Thessalonica were specifically Jews. And they were more noble-minded because the Berean Jews were willing to look at the Scriptures over their traditions. That's a noble-minded disciple. You know, a follower of Jesus who would rather see what the Scriptures say than lean into what my tradition teaches. And that's hard. Because for many of us, tradition was the foundation on which our faith was built. And it scares the dickens out of us to think that if I give up my traditions, what if my faith fails? It won't. Not if your faith is in Jesus Christ. We were laughing about this at the shepherds meeting just last week about unreforming some of our shepherds. And I laugh because I think about how hard Jesus has had to work in my life to unhook me from old religious tradition. Legalistic tendencies that I bought lock, stock, and barrel because that's just how I was raised. But I have found, and I believe many of you have as well, so much security in Jesus. Man, I can let the traditions go. Just tell me what the Word says. If the Word runs counter to what I think is important, but the Word says it, man, I'll go with the Word because I know that comes from Jesus. And that works for me. And I am so far off of my notes, I have no idea where I am. Oh, so they're more noble-minded in Berea because they went to the Word. Ah, but for those, <laughs> for those in opposition to the Word, and I'm speaking of those Jews in Europe, a far worse fate was coming. And Paul continues in verse uh, 15 saying they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. That's how twisted it is. If I can shut down the gospel going to someone else, I will protect my own salvation. Brothers and sisters, there are so-called Christian churches that do that. We will not tell other people about Jesus because the salvation is for us. And unless they become like us, they will not be saved. No, Unless you give your life to Jesus, you will not be saved. But they're out there hindering people from even coming to Jesus so that they may be saved with the result, watch this, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And that's what opposition to God does. It fills up. Often, the person in rebellion or in opposition doesn't even realize how full their tank is getting. Good people, without Jesus, have no idea how full their sin tank really is. Until they come to Jesus, that's when recognition comes. But every one of us, we had that moment where we realized how desperately we needed Jesus to be saved. We needed His grace. 
Because otherwise we start to realize how full the tank is. That's what happens with sin. Sin doesn't drop into the bottom of the tank and then just kind of dissipate. It collects. We had a drippy faucet in our tub. We have fought that faucet for 13 years. I think it's time for a new one. We have to put a little rubber fitting in there every few months just to stop the leak. And then the leak comes and we buy a new rubber fitting and we stick it in there and it stops for a while. But I at one point wanted to see how much water are we really losing here. And so I put a bucket under the drippy faucet before I went to bed one night. And the next morning, not only was the bucket full, but about three inches of water was standing in the tub. And I'm like, oh man, I had no idea. Because to me, it was just drip, drip, drip. Well, that's not too much, right? It's not like it's pouring. Yeah, I sin, drip. That's not too much, drip. I mean, really, it's not like it's just gushing sin, drip. And it fills up. And we have no idea. It gets fuller and fuller, and the Lord is patient. The Lord is just allowing that thing to fill up. We're deceiving ourselves thinking... I'm I'm talking about outside of Christ, because in Christ we're not deceiving ourselves. We know how much we need His grace. We know that thing fills up just like that. But the good person doesn't realize it is filling up. That's what sin does. And the stunning reality of the fallout is in Israel. It's the example of the Jewish people. Their rebellion, which would cause them suffering, Paul says, to the utmost, literally to the end. To the end of what? To the end of the age. As Jesus said, Luke 21-24, they will fall by the edge of the sword, they will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When is that? The end. All the way to the end, literally, of the tribulation, the sin of Israel filling up. And the punishment and the fallout has come upon them to the utmost. And all anyone has to do to recognize what sin does is look at Israel and look at the suffering of the Jewish people. That's the fallout of rejecting Jesus. One last advantage now. In the face of antagonism and recognizing the tragedy of this opposition, we come to number seven in our list and it is what I would call an evangelist's expectation. Verse 17, But we, brethren... Having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Man, absence does make the heart grow fonder. After having left Thessalonica for such a short time, for Paul, he just loved them. Remember, he loved Philippi. Oh, remember, Paul loved Ephesus. I think every church he ever served in, every church he ever planted, he adored And he missed when he left. But in this case, he says, Oh, we missed you so much. We're eager to see you. We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. And I think one of the most difficult things about Christian living is distance. You know? It's when we get close to a brother or sister and they move away. We face this all the time here with our naval personnel. You know, they come and they go, and they come and they go. Would you all just knock it off and just stay? (laughs) And we love when they come. And we're sorrowful when they go. 
And we love even more when they come back. And then we're bummed even more when they go again. But we know something. We know something, don't we? It's not for long. We're going to be together. We expect that. We assume that. So why is it with that kind of personal intimacy that we hate to lose with our fellow believers in Christ, why is it that some people say, and perhaps it was you once or twice, a Wednesday night comes and you think, ah, I don't really need to be there tonight. I don't, I don't really need to... You know, Alice takes Sunday off. Pastor Rick's out of town anyway. Jake's going to preach. And you know... <laughs> I'm just kidding. You all know if you miss Jake, you miss a full plate of teaching. But why, why do we have those thoughts? I, I would think that here would be one of the top places on our lists to be. And I know it's Wednesday night and I'm totally preaching to the choir... That's okay, I know you'll listen and say amen, so it makes me comfortable. (laughs) You ever think about the fact that when you say to yourself, I don't really need to be there, that there's someone else who does need you to be there? That maybe you're not supposed to be here for yourself at all. But there's contact with another believer that needs to happen, and you don't realize it, maybe they won't even realize it, but that contact is lost because we decide it's just not that important. And you know who's doing the real hindering? Satan. Paul says, I wanted to get back to you, Thessalonica, but Satan hindered me. And when we can't, when we forsake, as the Bible says, our assembling together... You know the verse, Hebrews 10.24. Let's not forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as as you see the day drawing near. Satan loves to hinder face-to-face fellowship. Why? Because it's a whole lot easier to pick off lone Christians. And it's easier to discourage those who are gathered. When one is not there, or another is not there. Oh, I miss so-and-so. I was, I was so hoping to see them tonight. Or I was so hoping to run into them Sunday. Listen, one of my favorite songs that we sing is, Oh, How I Need You. For one thing, because it's, it's a barn stomper, you know. Oh, how I need you, we sing. And we're singing to the Lord. May we, like Paul, learn how to say, Oh, how I need you, brothers and sisters. May we learn a similar tune for each other. I need you. I think you need me. We need each other. And on to the canvas of this fond absence and this desire to be with the people, his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, Paul paints a rapturous picture. A circular wreath of people at that victorious gathering of the church. Verse 19 For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? It's called the crown of of the evangelist. I I was going to go into it. There are five different crowns offered, promised. This is just one of the five. I'm not going to do the other four. We'll do those another time. But this is the crown of the evangelist. And listen, don't miss this. The crown of the evangelist picture it. You arrive there raptured. You are now in the presence of Jesus and suddenly 
you found yourself surrounded as by a crown of those who came to Jesus because you told them about Him. Because you introduced them to Jesus Christ. And suddenly you look around and they are all around you. And that's the crown of the evangelist. It's a beautiful picture. But what's even more stirring in it for me is recognizing the evangelist's expectation is not that they're all going to come rushing up and thank me, but that they are too busy worshiping Him. And that's the joy. That's the thrill. If you have ever introduced someone to Jesus, the thrill is not them coming up and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for teaching me about Jesus. The thrill is watching them worship Him. The joy is seeing them go tell someone else about Him. That's the evangelist's crown. That's the evangelist's expectation that as I tell people about Jesus, they'll tell people about Jesus. And honestly, I'm going to forget who I even told about Jesus. Until the rapture happens and we are all there worshiping Him and at some point we look around and we see all these people that are there and you remember or realize God used me to introduce that person. And now look at their love. Look at their passion. Look at their worship. That does something to you. When you're not, as an evangelist, thinking about checking off numbers. I did that early on as a believer. I thought, I want to see how many people I can save. And I kept a list. I'm ashamed to say so, but I did. I remember when I was at four. Yes, four people. And I couldn't wait till I could go to my little book and draw a line through the four. Five, you know. And I could show up at the gates of heaven and say, Oh Lord, here's my list. And over time, that just kind of faded away in the realization that the true joy is seeing the joy on their face as they love Jesus. It's not what I did. But it's the fact that they are now part of the deal. That's a crown. It's a beautiful crown. And it reminds us of Jesus. This is where the the real joy is. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Man, consider Him who faced such opposition. Why did He do it? For the joy. The joy of what? Checking boxes? Numbering saved people? No. The joy of Jesus is knowing you would be here tonight. Jesus looking through the bloody eyes of Calvary and seeing people who said, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's the crown. It's not just joy in fellowship. It is joy in the fellowship of salvation. Jesus said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And Paul finishes, for you, Thessalonians, you are our glory and our joy. And no opposition can diminish that. No opposition coming against the church, even rising up at times within the church, no opposition can steal the joy of seeing people saved. Which is what we've all been called to. And as a matter of fact, I think opposition tends to just make it a little sweeter. Father, thank You for the opposition. Thank You for the antagonism. Thank You for the resistance. 
And especially, Lord, I thank You for how You use these things to strengthen and embolden our faith. How we see in Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and all those who went before us this incredible courage and and passion against all odds, Father. And that's where we are today again. And I pray rather, Father, than give up or shrink back or become lazy or sluggardly, Lord, that we would be so filled with the joy of Your Spirit, so overwhelmed with the presence of Jesus in our lives, so excited about this true Word of salvation that we, like Peter and John, like Paul and the other boys, could not shut up, but we have to tell. Father, I thank You for all the opportunities I see happening right now in our fellowship. It's very exciting to me, Lord. The missions opportunities, the growth opportunities. And I pray, Father, You will continue to pour out Your Spirit such that we see people saved right and left, and that the ranks, Father, will swell on the day of the rapture of the church, simply because we saw the joy set before us. We praise Your name and thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your love. In Jesus we pray. Amen.